Hey there. Welcome to Twins Talk Clear-Cut Communication. Yes, we are twins. And yes, we are two old guys who should know better than to try to tackle the topic of communication in a podcast. But we're going to do it anyway, and hopefully you'll find it informative and maybe even enjoyable. Hey, we're coming to you today from Please Understand Us, Kansas. And Ray, before we get into it, we're going to keep working on the conflict management model that we started last week. We had a couple people contact us, and I thought we should comment. One of them is a dear, dear friend in her 80s, and that clearly increases our demographic, our span of influence from L at, is it L right. at six to 80s. We run the gamut. We are That's not. Right. We please the whole age range. That's right. We are not a restricted demographic. But this wonderful person was a former teacher of ours, and she described our podcast as adorable and brilliant. (laughs) And I thought, okay, I'll go with brilliant, but adorable? We haven't been adorable in decades. And so I thought that was wonderful. And then also, uh, it was so funny because when she wrote us, obviously, she wrote a nice long note, and she said she only knew the two of us as these big, handsome football players in high school. You know, I always thought she had a very small comparison base for that comment about football players. She only maybe knew two or three. That's right. Because we certainly would not qualify as big, even on our team. And then the first thought that ran through my mind was, well, she just must think we're another set of pretty faces that we just, uh, so we're going to have to convince her on this podcast. We've got the goods. We've got. Yes. Okay. We've got more to say here. We'll go all out to sound profound. Well, I want, and I want to do a, uh, a shout out uh, to someone who gave me a little bit of feedback on our podcast. Uh, he's a legendary cardiologist in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, true friend. And he said he had one complaint, one issue that cost him a little bit of heartburn. And that was the podcast are too short. Hmm. And I tried to explain to him that our goal, we were told, was to have a time frame for the average commute so people could listen while they were commuting. I said, if he wants more, then he needs to listen to two at a time or three at a time. <laughs> and since, I, I did not know that. I did not think we'd probably lengthen them. Well, in fact, since our age group, average commute is probably four or five minutes <laughs> in terms of how often this age group actually get out of the house. That's uh, right. And then the other thought is, now he has given us since he's uh, what did you say legendary, a cardiologist. Since he's legendary, that means we can increase the podcast at any length of time, and the rest of the listeners just need to hang in there, pay attention. Well, if we did that, we'd have to have legendary sessions, legendary episodes, so they would be singularly for him. That's true. Well, given that we're legends in our own mind, that's there possible. That's possible. Okay, on to a bit more serious business. We had someone else write in and ask us a question, uh, said, hey, Bob, is the two-minute guidance relevant with intimacy or interest? Does it apply if the person longs to hear the communication? How does one discern this? Thoughts on that, Bear? Well, my reaction is that the writer is looking at the two-minute rule, two-minute idea, I think from an angle or a perspective that I think is maybe not intended. Two-minute rule is not to interrupt in a way that takes things away from the speaker or causes a disruption or causes a separation. Or Two-minute rule is really 
suggesting that if you choose to interrupt with listening behavior, you are not likely to be perceived as interrupting. And so it's not a flaw. It's not a negative input on the communication. And so I, I wonder if fellow writing is thinking of that, that the, the goal of the two-minute interruption is to make sure you're clear and focused and that you're using listening behavior that causes the person who's speaking to be able to share effectively. And actually, again, to state the two-minute rule in its more accurate form, it's that you don't want to talk longer than two minutes uninterrupted. It's not the question that you're always stopping in two minutes. It's the fact that we can only handle interpersonal conversations with a level of energy and with a level of understanding that kind of runs about two minutes. So being sensitive to that helps us either interrupt ourselves or helps others to interrupt and for us to recognize that that keeps the conversation going. So my reflection back too is that it's almost irrelevant, the level of intimacy or the level of interest that someone has in your communication, you as a communicator need to just be sensitive that when you're in one-on-one or small group communications, you need to be as prepared to be a listener, which is what you become when you interrupt the conversation, when you engage in questions or you interrupt the listening behaviors, you need to be as much a listener as you are a speaker. So I think both of us would say when he asked the question, uh, how does one discern this? I'm not sure it's an issue of discernment as much as it is is an issue of practice and saying, I need to get in the habit of keeping my conversations contained in a short interactive mode so I maintain the level of energy and interest and keep the other person involved. I agree agree totally. Bye there. Okay. Let's go after conflict in the five styles from the last session. Go for it. Yeah, the, the five styles, I've gotten some feedback locally about the five styles and that when we were sharing them. This, by the way, is this atomic feedback? Because no, Oak Ridge not, is no, no, the atomic, atomic community. So when uh, you say you no, get I say, locally, I'm always anticipating it's atomic feedback. No, locally, when I say local, I mean within reach personally, <laughs> not, not a radiation or energy level. Uh, the individual mentioned to me that it was a little bit of work because I was trying to create a visual and they were trying to keep up without writing it down and it became a little bit complicated. Let me remind people, there were five strategies from the Thomas Kilman assessment of managing conflict. And let's let's give it a, a handle. There are three C's and two A's in the five strategies. You've got, you've got competing, you've got collaborating, and you've got compromise as the three C's. And then you've got avoidance, and you've got accommodation as the two A's. Now, I remember them because... That was kind of the grade you got when we were at Central Michigan. And those were per term. three C's semesters. and two A's. And those were my good semesters. Yeah, those were great semesters for you. But of course, I remember them as the initials for the women you failed to date in high school. So <laughs> so we've both got a way of hanging on to those. those yeah, we both have a way of remembering that. Okay? okay. But that's one way that you can handle or you can hang on to the five of them. Now, one of the things I think people also need to keep in mind is that your choice in using any one of these five is dictated by and large by the context of the conflict, okay, and your skill level for each of the five. So if you're not skilled and you're trying to apply one, that's going to be a problem in itself. And if you're using the wrong context, if you're in if you're in one context that has good usefulness for a specific strategy, uh, but you're not using that one, then that's also going to be a bit of a problem. So in addition to knowing the names of the five styles, I think you have to keep in mind, what's the context of the conflict and how skilled am I? What do I think of my skill set to use this? 
when you say how skilled am I in terms of the five different uh, styles, preferences, or options, I need to think about my skill set as to which one uses my skill set best. Okay. Well, one of the things we're going to talk about today is the skills that each of the five require. So I can then match that against what I think my skills are. The other thing I want to caution people to consider in a conflict situation beyond just which style is the need to slow down, the need to not rush into conflict. Anytime you are rushing, anytime you are feeling that speed, I think it works to your disadvantage. People who are best at managing conflict automatically slow down. They automatically back off the gas pedal. They do not want to rush into this because that's put you in, a, in the weakest possible position. You know, and I think there we stand with a lot of people who write on the issue and speak on the issue of conflict or speak on the issue of negotiating relationships, just speak on the issue of interpersonal communication, that when you get in these heightened situations, slowing the conversation down is always a preferred way of dealing with it versus quickly accelerating it and thereby increasing greatly the potential of escalate. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah, deep breaths help. Just take a couple of deep breaths before you start to address it. Okay. And then finally, one of the things I want to bring to people's attention is that each of the five are useful in given situations. And that's what you've got to keep track of. There's a utility factor for each of the five, but you need to keep track of which situations they work in. My read of the model is that when it was originally developed, it had a kind of preference, what our individual preferences are. So we tended to rely on that particular one and called it a style. What I'm hearing you argue for is that, no, all of them are useful in particular contexts. Now, given that, we may still have a preference. That is, we may have one in which we feel there are more situations that this is an option that I would choose. This particular approach, this particular preference would be the one I would opt for, but that we have to really be sensitive to the situation, the conflict situation, and to our own skill set. I'm hoping for our listeners that their skill set is aligned with their generalized preference. Otherwise, they're really out of sync in terms of saying, well, I opt for this, but my skills are something totally different. You know, Bob, I'm going to push back a little bit. I tend to think if people believe they have a preference, they've lost choice. Huh. They've stopped choosing. Okay. So let's say I have two what are I consider natural preferences. What that says to me is you're not choosing anymore. You're just going to rely on those. You're going to move into situations and use those preferences. Make those preferences work, even if the context doesn't suggest it's going to be that useful. So my concern about people having, although I think you're right, I do think people develop preferences. They are more familiar with one or two of these than they are the others, and even possible that one or two of them become habit, they're habitual. But I think what that says to me is, if that's true, you may have lost what I consider choice. You're no longer choosing, you're reacting. You know, and this actually goes way back for me to our earliest episodes, episode two, episode three, about underlying beliefs that we develop in terms of framing good communication. Our argument is the strategic communicator, person who moves towards a strategic belief regarding interpersonal communication, recognizes the implicit character of choice in their communication behavior, that they are making choices. And so it kind of reaffirms this notion of being a more strategic communicator, acknowledges that choice is key to our understanding of being successful and effective. Okay. Okay, let's go up to the first C. Okay. The first C, I'll 
bring up is competition. Now, this creates a what I consider the I win, you lose phenomenon. Competition is where I intend to get my way. I as, I'm highly assertive and I'm low in accommodation. So I'm not putting a priority on what you might need in this conflict. I'm, I am saying that I feel the need for the, for the result to turn out this way. And I'm going to assert what I think is the right position and get my way because I believe that will result in the best outcome. And so this is the, it's my way or the highway approach. My way or the highway. And to give it a context that this actually works. There are times that this should be used. There are times that this is the most appropriate strategy. But the context for using it is one, a sense of urgency. That if the, if this conflict has to be resolved within a 24-hour recent, a, a now time frame, then this might be the, the strategy that needs to be used. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of urgency. In a plane crash, you don't want a lot of conversation. When you're running into emergency situations, you do not want everyone having a vote. You do not want everyone feeling they ought to have control of how this goes down. Okay, so I would say anytime conflict you're talking about has a time frame that's urgent, time frame that's not in medical situations. You don't want five people trying to come to a conclusion to address a person who's in a terrible situation, physically, life-threatening. You want someone to make choices that produce the right outcome. And, and this doesn't negate something we talked about earlier which is checkpoints, like the comment that we made about get it, got it, good. There are moments, even in urgent situations, where we need to make sure that the communication is clear. But what we are saying is that this model serves best when we need someone to take charge, when we need someone to really assert themselves, when we need someone in this urgent situation to take control of it. And you use the reference of a plane crash. And one of the things that I've often thought about is that one of the negative outcomes of taking this approach is that almost all of life becomes a plane crash. An individual begins to treat every decision, every situation as urgent, requiring immediate attention, requiring immediate forceful assertiveness. And as a result, their world is filled with plane crashes rather than saying, no, there are real plane crashes, but then there are other situations that you've made them into that and they're not really that. So that would be one of the cautions that we have to encourage listeners is that as, as you think about this approach and think this sounds like a good one to me, or I want to use it in certain situations, be careful that the backlash isn't that you become one of those people, leaders, parents who make all of life a plane crash, right? Right, exactly. The tendency is to see these conflicts as being urgent when in fact, in truth, they're not. Now, I won't ascribe to research that backs us up like your two-minute rule, but I think if this doesn't have to be resolved within 24 hours, I think this strategy is not necessarily the most appropriate one. I was going to ask you about that. So as you think about this, this could be one of those where we use a kind of general guideline that there are emergencies, there are situations, but if what we're looking at, either the conversation we're having or the decision we're having to make is something that can be delayed or something that can be thought about for 24 hours, we ought to use that as a general guide and say, okay, this strategy is not in that, this context is not one that requires a a competitive approach. Exactly. Let me talk real quickly about the skills you need to consider if you're going to use this approach. One is you need to be effective at arguing your point. You need to be able to clearly give people a picture of why you would choose what you choose. If you're going to be effective at being competitive or being assertive, that's a critical issue because if you're confusing, then others won't follow you. I think you also need to 
have a lot of experience with asserting your opinions and your feelings. If this is new to you, stepping up, then you need to be very cautious about using this strategy because mm-hmm. it could turn against you. Okay. I think you also need to demonstrate that you've got experience in making good decisions under these conditions, mm-hmm. that you have a track record that gives you credibility. Okay, And that way, people will respond to you. And can you stand your ground in the face of opposition? For a lot of people who try to use a strategy, the problem is other people are going to push back and then they give in and they become ineffective at asserting what they need to assert in order to get the outcome that may, in fact, be the best choice. So you have to be good at standing your ground. Now, would you view trash talking as a good part of this particular strategy? (laughs) I don't think, I never have considered trash talking a part of being assertive. (laughs) I've considered it a part of being socially challenged, socially challenging. Okay, I just wanted to check that out. Just wanted okay. to check that out. Good check. Now, the, the last thing I'll say about this is what happens if you overuse this? I think you begin to receive less feedback from others because hmm. they know you're not listening. They know you started out that you're going to get your way or you intend to get your way, so you're really not open to feedback. So if you overuse this, people begin to believe it's futile to give you feedback because you're not listening. I also think that there's reduced learning because you're not getting feedback. I mean, if you're not receiving what other people are trying to input, there's very little learning going on. So if you overuse this, if this becomes your natural preference, your natural style, or use this a lot, truth is there's going to be very little learning going on between you and others. And what I'm hearing you say on that is really how you come across is yours is the only opinion that matters. Exactly. So what ends up happening is you're not getting the kind of input, you're not getting the kind of conversation you really like when you use this strategy. Okay. And I would say that also ends up happening either in a professional sense or in a personal sense is you come surrounded by people who know their job is to say yes, whether it's employees, if you happen to be in a leadership role, or it's a parent. I mean, children pretty quickly learn to understand that their job is to say yes to a mom or dad whose only style is to be competitive, to have their way or no way. Okay. Use. Okay. Now, one other element of overusing this is that you push people into avoidance mode. Mm. or into a counter-competitive mode. And neither of those necessarily generate outcomes that successfully resolve the conflict. More likely, I'm hearing you say, it's either going to escalate the conflict or the other person is going to walk away, the conflict wasn't resolved, and it's going to surface again. It's going to show up sometime in the future. So I think, in summary, there is a place for being competitive in your style. But that context is a state of urgency. It's a situation in which you have a great deal of confidence you will come up with the right solution to solve the problem, conflict, and it requires you to be successful in articulating picture that's clear enough the other person can follow. So next week, we moved on to the second C, collaboration. Right, which I think is probably, if I've got us right, is our favorite. The twins are done talking for today. Now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you with feedback regarding today's theme or a situation you'd like us to step into during a future session. You can reach us at twintalk46 at gmail.com. Remember, no communication problem is so big, so complicated, or so intense that we can't make it larger, more complex, or more dangerous than it already is, almost effortlessly. And we'd like to thank Kevin McLeod for the score that both began and ended this podcast.